0: Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, um, verse 35. We're going to read through verse 41 here in a second. We're jumping back into our long series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which, if you're not aware, is a chronological, verse-by-verse, walk through the life of Christ using all four Gospels. We're picking it right back up where we left off. Now, I know I put in your bulletin last week that you were to study in advance Luke's version of the story that we're looking at today, plus the next story after this one. But in preparation this week, I decided to center in on Mark's version. And it turns out um, that I'm not going to be able to squeeze the next story in, uh, the healing of the demon-possessed man in today's sermon. So, so next week, to prepare in advance, read Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And so um, I didn't make that call until last night, so we um, so will have to adjust the preaching schedule. Um, as you're finding your, your uh, passage of Scripture we're looking at today, let me ask you this question. What are, what are you afraid of? What are some things that you guys out there are afraid of? How many of you are afraid of heights? Wow. Okay, we've got quite a few that are afraid of heights. I'm, I'm sort of afraid of heights. Depends on if anything's under me or not. Um, how many of you are afraid of needles? Good. I'm not the only one. Clowns. All right. A few. Yes. Sherry, I saw that. You were emphatic about that one. What else? What else are some people in here afraid of? Roller coasters. What? Snakes? Okay. Snakes. Roller coasters. Roller coasters with snakes in them. Now, of course, in our hyper-psychologized culture that we live in, there are all sorts of weird Fears, or what called phobias. The following are real phobias, or supposedly real phobias, that have been officially diagnosed by psychologists today. There's somnophobia, which is the fear of falling asleep. Anyone in here with that problem? I don't think you can't fall asleep, you're afraid to fall asleep. Somnophobia. Um, there is a hylophobia, which is the fear of trees. Um, there's turophobia, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing all these right. Turophobia is the fear of cheese, right? Just scared of cheese. Um, there is um, ablutophobia, which is the fear of bathing. I think that's a common fear that uh, impacts a lot of teenagers. Um, there's anthophobia, which is the fear of flowers. And that one affects men most of the year, except for Valentine's and anniversaries. Um, there's, now, this one's hard. Arachibuterophobia. Arachibuterophobia. That is the fear of peanut butter sticking to your palate. Okay? Just scared to death that that peanut butter is going to get stuck on your palate that you become so paralyzed you can't do anything. Then there's um, pantherophobia. This is supposedly real. The fear of mother-in-law's. Pentherophobia. Um, anybody out there want to raise their hand on that one? Nomophobia. This is a new one. Nomophobia is the fear of being without mobile phone coverage. The fear of being without mobile phone coverage. There's uh, pagonophobia, which is the fear of beards. I'm sorry if there's anyone in here with a fear of beards. Grant, you need to be careful of whatever these folks are. Pagonophobia, people. Um, And then there's actually this, believe it or not. There is phobophobia. The fear of acquiring some particular phobia. Phobophobia. Now, some of these fears are absolutely foolish and irrational, like the the fear of uh, bathing. Some fears are good and rational, like the fear of needles, okay? I mean, that just makes sense. Or spiders. But in today's text... The reason I bring this stuff up is in today's text, we read the disciples of Jesus experiencing two very different types of fear. One expression of fear that they have was foolish and even deadly. It was a fear that drove them away from faith in God. The other fear was good and right, a fear that drove them toward deeper faith in God. So, I want us to read this passage of Scripture, and so be looking for these two fears, especially as we come to the, near the end of the text. So please stand, if you would, as we read Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through verse 41. This is the Word of God. We believe it's the infallible inerrant Word of God. That's why we stand as we read the Word, as we get prepared to preach it. This is a very well-known and well-liked passage of Scripture, one that we like to talk, tell the kids about a lot. Mark chapter 4. Beginning of verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was asleep in the stern. I mean, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go through this text today that we will ask that question. Who then is this? Help us, Holy Spirit, to see and savor. Jesus Christ, the God-man, in today's text, and help us in seeing Jesus to have our faith stirred up and a deep reverential fear put into our hearts. So God, I pray that you would give me a mouth to speak, strike anything from this sermon, Lord, that doesn't need to be said, and give all of us, myself included, ears to hear this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as I said before I read it, this is one of the most well-known stories of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, we need to remember that uh, because it's well-known, sometimes we, we tend to gloss over these stories, or sometimes we seem to add, give the wrong meaning to stories like this one. Now, we need to remember everything that Jesus does, including the events of today's story, he does for a distinct purpose, a, a, a reason— Every event lived out by Jesus is communicating something to us, something to us about himself. And the same is true with this passage this morning. So up front, we must say that this passage is not here to teach us primarily that Jesus will calm the storms of our lives. That he'll get us out of a stormy financial situation, that he'll fix a stormy marriage, that he will work on our stormy jobs. That's sometimes how this text is preached. But we must see that the main purpose of this text is this, to display and prove that Jesus of Nazareth is God in human flesh and thereby elicit strong, immovable faith in him. That's the purpose of this text. What Jesus wishes to stir up in the disciples in this story is in the disciples' Listening to this story today, that would be us. What Jesus wishes to stir up is solid, firm faith in who he is and who is he. According to this text, he is the God-man in whom we are to put all of our hope. And he is on full display in this story. His humanity is on full display as an exhausted Jesus sleeps through a terrible storm. And his divinity is on full display as an authoritative Jesus tells the very same storm to stand down and be quiet. Now, before we jump into this text, I I need to bring us up to speed a little bit here in our our sermon series. I know it's been since, I think, May of last year that we were in seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. So let me remind us of where we were in the the chronological story of Jesus' life. Now, despite this account of this story appearing fairly early in Mark's Gospel in chapter 4, we are chronologically over halfway through the earthly three-year ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The period of ministry that we are now in, that we are studying, is the time that's known as the, the latter Galilean ministry. This is the ministry period right before he then begins to set his face towards Jerusalem to head to the cross. I'll remind you that Jesus, despite having large crowds following him, and perhaps because the large crowds are following him, he has already run afoul of the religious leaders. They've accused him of blasphemy. Uh, They've accused him of profaning the Sabbath and of doing his miracles by the power of Satan. And they've already begun to conspire about how they can rid themselves of this man. Now, immediately prior to the events of this passage, Jesus had begun to preach primarily in parables. You'll remember he shifted to a primarily parabolic teaching style in our uh, as we were finishing uh, the series last May. So he's, he's shifted to a to the parables being his main means of teaching. And these parables serve two purposes. They serve as a means of judgment to confuse and hide the kingdom from those who who have hardened hearts, who have hardened their hearts to his teaching. Yet at the same time, the same parables or our means of simplifying and revealing the kingdom to those who had eyes to see and ears to hear. So judgment and revelation all at the same time. So after the inauguration of his parabolic ministry where we have the parables of the kingdom, we come to today's text. So verse 35 says, On that day, that's the same day as the events of the other events of of Mark chapter 4, and perhaps some of the events from Mark chapter 3. So on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So Jesus is tired and ready for some rest, and he's the one who decides it's time to move on. He, not the disciples, is the one who sets to the destination and commands them to set out. And so obedience, so in obedience, they do so. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him Now let me, let me just pause right here to, to make an observation. Just, just notice all the little details in this story. Them taking him just as he was and that there being other boats in the story. And there's other details like the, like the specific location in the boat where Jesus was sleeping and the fact that he had a cushion. These details show us that these words recorded here were recorded by an eyewitness account. This is an eyewitness account that is actually being recorded for us here. Most scholars believe that John Mark was recording the Apostle Peter's account of Jesus' life. So really, the the Gospel of Mark could be the Gospel of of Peter. So they were heading to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's an area known as the Decapolis, which was an association or a league of ten free Greek cities. In other words, it was a region populated mainly by Gentiles. The journey normally would take about two hours, but this journey, as we know, gets interrupted. Verse 37. Verse 37 and a great windstorm arose the storm that is stirred up is no small storm literally in the greek it's a mega storm now it wasn't uncommon for the sea of galilee to experience surprise storms the the big lake as it was uh, is, is if you know about the Sea of Galilee, it's over 600 feet below sea level. And it was surrounded by high mountains which formed sort of a basin. And so when a storm would come, the winds would enter into that geographical bowl. and it would start to swirl violently causing large waves to be stirred up on the sea. So the storms themselves were not that uncommon. But this storm apparently was fairly uncommon because it was unusually large so much so that we read in verse 7 verse 37 that the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was filling up it was already filling the waves are coming into the boat now I'm no fisherman and I know very little about boats but I know this the water needs to stay on the outside of the boat and so this is a very dangerous situation this is real trouble that the disciples find themselves in this is not potential trouble This is not imagined trouble. This is genuine trouble, legitimate peril, actual danger, and it leads to real fear and desperation. Uh, I remember, I think it was the year 2000, maybe 2002, 2003, uh, my wife and I and some other members of our children's ministry at First Baptist Church Bentonville came to Atlanta for a children's ministry conference. And we went back to uh, northwest Arkansas when the conference was done, and we rode on, on a fairly small plane. You would think that going halfway across the country, they'd put you on a big sucker, but they didn't. It was a little one, a little plane. And we get on this plane, and uh, I don't know how many of you have been on a plane in the midst of a thunderstorm. Okay? It can get pretty bumpy, but I have flown a lot. I have flown to different countries, and so I'm very used to flying. And so... I really don't get nervous. I actually enjoy the turbulence. It kind of puts me to sleep, you know, as we're bouncing. Now, my wife, on the other hand, is a little, you know, on edge when the plane begins to bump. But on this particular ride, we hit the scariest thunderstorm I've ever experienced. And that plane, that little plane was being tossed back and forth, and there were literally people screaming every time we hit a big bump. And "Ah!" And and people were crying, and the other ladies from our children's ministry, they were all crying and huddled together. And I was trying to put on a brave face, and I think I did an okay job. But to be honest with you, I was scared, senseless. This was the scariest flight I had ever been on. But we made it, as you can tell. We got to northwest Arkansas. So I, I, I was an experienced flyer, yet this still scared me. And that's what's happening here. The, remember, these, these people at the helm of this boat were very experienced fishermen. They were hardened fishermen. They, they knew storms. They had been in storms before. They knew how to handle the Sea of Galilee. Yet this megastorm was swamping their boat so that even the most experienced of them were struggling. Everyone on the boat seems to be freaking out. Well... Almost everyone, right? Verse 38. But he, that's Jesus, was in the stern. That's, that's the back of the boat, for those of you in here who know about as much about boats as I do. okay? The stern, that's the back of the boat. Asleep on the cushion. This was probably a specific cushion. Notice the article there, the cushion. A specific cushion that was used by the person who steered the boat. Who sat, would sit on that and, and handle the rudder. So he's asleep on the cushion. And... He's the only one that's not freaking out. Now, a couple of things to, to, I think, to observe here. What do we make of this fact that Jesus is still sound asleep? Well, first of all, two observations. First of all, we need to understand that this was a very human, 100% human Jesus who is very exhausted. He's very man of very man. Jesus is totally drained. It's been a long and tough ministry day, from the physical exhaustion of hours of teaching to the emotional exhaustion of dealing with hard-hearted and slow to learn people. He is dead tired. Now, you may be thinking, how could he possibly sleep through that? I mean, water's coming in and splashing on him, but that just shows you how exhausted he was. Now I can relate to this to a degree, not myself, I'm not a real heavy sleeper, but I remember in, uh, I think, let me get the date right, it was March 5th of 1987, a 7.1 earthquake hit where we lived there in Ecuador, and earlier in the night there had been some tremors that kind of had us all on edge, but in the middle of the night the big one hit, and that earthquake hit and the whole house was shaking, it was loud, and there were things falling off the shelves, and I went running down the hallway screaming, ah, to my parents' room, and we all got underneath the the, what do you call it, the the door frame there, because I guess that's what you're supposed to do, so that, I I don't know why you're assuming the only part of the house that won't fall is the door where you're standing, but anyway, there we were, under the door frame, all huddled together, and we realized that we weren't all there. My brother Tim was still sound asleep in his bed. So we go in there, and we we get Tim and say, wake up, we're shaking him, saying, the house is shaking, come on, wake up. Finally got him up, and he's just like, what's going on? You know, so we get him over there, we all get under the door frame, but here he was able to just sleep right through what was a very loud and scary event. So I think what we're seeing here is simply Jesus' humanity on display. He's exhausted and he had to be rudely awakened. So see and savor Jesus Christ, the man who took on human frailty and weakness for us. Hebrews 2.17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Hebrews 4.15 teaches us that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, including scary situations. Kids, children in here. The next time you are scared at one of these spring thunderstorms that comes through Georgia frequently, know that Jesus... Identifies with you. He has experienced storms. He has been in scarier situations. So he is able to sympathize with you. He is there to help you, to sustain you in the midst of the storm. Matter of fact, as we'll learn, the storms actually have to obey Jesus. Now, that's the first thing, his humanity on display. But secondly, beyond his humanity on display, in his sleeping, I see, I think we see something else. We see his perfect rest and peace on display. He had no anxieties. He was walking in perfect obedience to his father, and thus he had complete trust in his father's will so he could rest very easily. He could trust completely that his father was in control. Matter of fact, Jesus' obedience, I think, is one of the things that's sort of highlighted in this text, his obedience to the father, in the fact that there's a very interesting parallel between this story and an Old Testament story. What Old Testament story do you think I'm referring to in regards to a parallel here to an Old Testament account of a very real thing that happened as well? Any guesses? I think I saw someone mouth it but they're scared to say it. Jonah, okay? The story of Jonah is very interesting. There's some very interesting parallels that can't be ignored. They seem to be intentionally written into the text here by Mark, perhaps intentionally, I think intentionally, Uh, lived out by Jesus. Jonah, in the story of Jonah, we have a disobedient prophet who also falls asleep in a boat in the midst of a very different storm. But Jonah, unlike Jesus, was heading away from God's revealed will. He was living in disobedience. So when he was awakened, he was utterly helpless. He had no peace. He had no ability to stop the storm. So he told the frightened sailors to cast him into the sea. But Jesus, the final and greater prophet, is walking in absolute obedience with God, the Father. He has total peace. Jonah refused to go to the Gentiles in Nineveh, but Jesus heads to the Gentiles in the Decapolis. Jonah was in turmoil as he ran away from God's will. Jesus has perfect peace as he rests in and obeys God's will. Jesus trusted fully in his Father's good will. So unlike Jonah, who was sleeping in the boat trying to hide from God... Jesus slept in perfect peace. We too should be able to rest in any trial that we're facing if we are walking in obedience and trusting in God's sovereign will. You don't have to know God's sovereign, secret will in order to rest in it. Too many Christians are trying to figure out what they're not allowed to figure out. The secret things belong to the Lord. Too many Christians are spending their time trying to figure out, what's God's plan for my life? That is not for you. To figure out, that's God's secret will. Your job is to obey, meditate upon His revealed will, which is right here in the Scriptures. And if you'll do that, guess what? You'll have peace about the things you don't know. We don't know God's secret plan. We are simply to rest in His goodness, rest in His will. What you do know is God's revealed will, which says things like this. Psalm 139, verse 16. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the revealed will of God. And so with confidence in, belief in, the revealed will of God, without having to know the unrevealed secret will of God, we can simply rest. When danger or storms arise, both literally or metaphorically, we can trust that nothing is outside of God's secret will. So we can rest and we can be at peace. And that's the fruit of solid faith. That's the fruit of solid faith. So with that, let me, let me transition to our first point of the day. We've got three points. You're thinking you're halfway through the sermon, you're just getting through the first point. but Don't worry, we'll, we'll make it. Here's the first point today. Simply this. Jesus, the God-man, tests the genuineness of our faith. Jesus, the God-man, tests the genuineness of our faith. And here's how the the disciples responded to the test. Second half of verse 38. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? As I said, there is a purpose Behind everything Jesus is doing, he is for sure putting his disciples' faith to the test. They had been acting in obedience. Jesus said, go to the other side of the lake, and so they did. It was evening, perhaps not the best time to be on the sea, but they went anyway. There's absolutely no evidence that they were questioning Jesus' orders. So there they were, being obedient, and how was their obedience rewarded? A terrifying storm comes. Friends, our obedience is not a get-out-of-storms-free card. A lot of Christians think that. Matter of fact, our obedience to God may actually be our first step into a storm. A storm sent by and designed by God to test our faith. The fact that God tests our faith should not be a surprise to us. It's exactly what God tells us in His Word Passage Deemer read earlier. I'll read a part of it again. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Listen to verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In next week's memory verse, next week's fighter verse, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And verse 4 says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So God puts storms, sometimes literal storms, scary situations like what the apostles faced here, sometimes more metaphorical storms, difficulties, problems, into our lives to test and see if we really do believe what we say we believe. And remember, the disciples are not in a perceived peril. They are in real danger, in real trouble. It's a real and scary test. Friends, the integrity and the genuineness of our faith is not revealed during times of ease, but during times of difficulty. The quality of our faith is not seen when God moves in a, in a very exciting and discernible way. Like, let's say, some surprise provision comes in for your family, and you're, you're praising God for this, this gift that's good and that's great. But that's not really a test of your faith. That's not, that doesn't really show us how genuine your faith is. No, the quality of our faith is seen when things are not going well, when His hand can't be discerned, when it seems that our life is about to be shipwrecked, when it seems, frankly, that Jesus is asleep at the rudder. So how do the disciples do with their test? I'll read it again. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Well, if it's not an F on the test, it's certainly a D. But we need to know that the testing of our faith isn't always about how well we do during the affliction, but in what we learn from it, even when we fall way short. Just like the disciples did. J.C. Ryle said that by affliction he teaches us many precious lessons. Which without it we should never learn. By affliction he shows us our emptiness, our weakness. Draws us to the throne of grace. Purifies our affections. Weans us from the world. And makes us long for heaven. Oh friends, let us see that when when we look back. When we look back on the designs that God had for our lives. We will certainly agree. With the psalmist who says this in Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Or later in verse 71, listen to this one. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Oh, friends, can you sing that psalm this morning? as the water is spilling into your boat at the time the disciples couldn't see how good this trial was for them they lacked faith because they failed to see fully who Jesus was but pretty soon they're going to be in a whole lot better situation this trial was good for them for it is through this trial that they were about to learn a whole lot more about their master you see, our trials, too, should ultimately drive us to a deeper knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They should drive us to our mediator. They should drive us to the one who controls the storm. They should drive us to our Lord and into a greater understanding understanding and appreciation of who he is. But before Jesus could open their eyes to more truth about himself, he needs to expose their foolish lack of faith. So here's my second point. Jesus, the God-man, exposes the impudence of our unbelief. So Jesus, the God-man, tests the genuineness of our faith and he exposes the impudence of our unbelief. You're asking, what's impudence? What means simply the rudeness and the arrogance. Listen to their words again. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The audacity and the rudeness of this is striking. The other two synoptic Gospels don't, Don't quite record it like this. But if indeed this is Peter's account, which I believe it is, then what we have here is raw honesty by the Apostle Peter as to the type of rude unbelief that he and the others often had. The Gospel of Mark, by the way, does not paint the disciples in a good light. When you read the Gospel of Mark, you you see the same impudence on display in in other accounts. For example... In either next week or in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to Mark chapter 5, verse 30, when the crowd is pressing in on, on Jesus, and a woman who had an issue of bleeding touches him, and she was healed. And Jesus asks, who touched my garments? And then in verse 31, we read this from the, the, the disciples. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? It'd be like us saying, seriously? Jesus? Instead of saying, I don't know, Lord, let me, let me find out, they have this, this type of unbelief that re- responds in sort of this impudent, rude type of behavior. Later we see something similar in, in um, Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus tells them to go get food for all these people. He says, you, you feed them, you figure out how to do this. And they say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to to eat? It's almost a sarcastic comment that they throw out there. Really, Jesus? They were slow learners. But we all are slow learners, aren't we? In reality, every time we fail to simply believe What our Lord Jesus says, every time we fail to trust what God's revealed will has shown us, we too are acting in rude impudence. It is something we inherited from our first parents. Remember Adam's impudent response to God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12? The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's your fault. You put this woman here. Everything was fine before... The women showed up. Well, friends, I, I wholly believe that the disciples' words here to Jesus after waking him up are sinful words. We need to be careful how we talk to God, especially in our day when we excuse rude unbelief as simply being authentic. I'm not being impudent, I'm just being authentic. Come on, be careful. We do see raw authenticity in the Psalms as David and others pour out their emotions and even their complaints to God. But there is a fine line between honestly pleading to God for answers and rudely questioning God's intentions. There's a fine line between that. One is inquisitive belief and the other is rude unbelief. I think we see it in Psalm 73 on display The psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73 is wondering why God seems to ignore the godly while allowing the wicked to prosper. And he, Asaph, he realizes that he almost crosses the line from faith-driven asking God for answers to a faith less complaining about the circumstances. That's why he says in Psalm 73, verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And then in verse 15, After he kind of mentions all these complaints, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, I would have sinned and I would have taken other people with me. So, So be careful. In the Psalm 73, Asaph puts the brakes on his complaints and turns his focus back to who God is through worship. And he kept his honest questions from becoming rude complaints. I think it's the difference between Mary and Zechariah. Remember the, the story of the two announcements? Of the, of, there's John the Baptist announcement of his birth, and then there's the announcement of, of, the, of, of the birth of Jesus that's going to come to, to Mary. And when Zechariah hears the word, he says, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel strikes him dumb for his unbelief. Yet, Just a little bit later in Luke chapter 1, we see a very similar response from Mary. Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? But she's given an explanation and she's blessed. I believe the difference is that one is rude unbelief and the other is inquisitive faith. The disciples show the former. Rude unbelief in this story. They actually accuse Jesus of not caring. Do you not care that we are perishing? The audacity of that accusation after all that Jesus had done and shown them. But how many of us have uttered the exact same words? God, do you care? How many of us uttered the exact same words under much less deadly circumstances? We're all guilty. Now, it's interesting. I, I kind of wonder, what, what are they wanting Jesus to do here? Now, obviously, from the reaction of him stilling the storm, that's not what they were expecting him to do. So what what do they want him to do here? Perhaps they want him to, to start helping bail water. Or maybe they want him to simply pray and implore God on their behalf. Either way, they wanted to use Jesus instead of trusting Jesus. They wanted to use Jesus instead of trusting Jesus. How prevalent this mentality is in the church Many of us want Jesus in our boat to do what we need him to do to fix our mess instead of simply trusting in him to do whatever he wants to do or doesn't want to do regardless of our mess. Friends, don't use Jesus. Trust Jesus. Do what the disciples did not do. The disciples have displayed impudent unbelief. A lack of steady faith. And Jesus exposes it. Look at his response in verse 40. We'll come back to verse 39 here in a second. But look at verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now the word afraid here could actually be translated, and I think it should be actually translated, cowardly. Why are you such big cowards? And this is not a mild rebuke. Have you still no faith? After all they had learned, after all they had witnessed, they had such small faith. Big cowardice, puny faith. You puny faith cowards. This was a rebuke. Oh, friends, let us learn from Jesus. Now, he may not have said it the way I just said it. I'm sure he said it with much more love, but directness, I'm sure. Let us learn from Jesus. In their fear... Jesus does not coddle them or pamper them. He does not say, it's okay, it's okay, settle down, everything's going to be okay. No, he rebukes them. Friends, so too when we counsel one another in the church, we need to have courage, Christ-enabled courage and love to call out weak faith. The problem with a lot of Christian counseling is that it's built on the world's model of therapy it teaches us to build up the other person's sense of self and coddle their fears. But biblical counseling must take its cue from the scriptures. And here we see Jesus rebuking unbelief. If we coddle unbelief, we will simply watch our Christian brothers and sisters travel through life, skipping from one problem to the next problem, always failing to trust God, always falling into the same anxieties, Always saying, woe is me, all because we don't have the guts to do what Jesus did and call a spade a spade. Unbelief is unbelief, it is sin. And it has to be lovingly and carefully rebuked. To do so is the true Christ-like love and kindness that we are called to display. It is not kind, it is not kind to coddle a fellow Christian while leaving them in their unbelief. Galatians 6 1. Do we believe this or not? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That kind of counseling is very hard to do, but it's biblical and it leads people to trust in who Jesus is the one who controls the storms the supreme king of and sustainer of the universe. We are called to, we, we should call one another to look to Christ, to repent of our ignorant unbelief. Jesus stills this storm to elicit rock-solid belief in him as God in the flesh. He wants to elicit that faith from the disciples and he wants to elicit that faith from us. And when that faith is stirred up, Jesus does something else. He reorients our fear, and that's my last point. Jesus, the God-man, corrects the placement of our fear. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. And, and it's almost as if creation recognizes the voice of its creator. How many of you guys have seen, had a situation where a kid... Or you have seen this where a kid's not obeying and getting into trouble and some people tell him, hey, stop, 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 stop. And he doesn't doesn't respond until his father's voice comes and says, little Johnny, stop it. Now little Johnny stops in his tracks and goes and sits down. Peace be still, little Johnny. Because it's his father's voice. And so too the, the creation which heard, let there be light, hears the same voice. Peace, be still. And he says, ah, oh, whoa, wait a second. I know that voice. We better calm down. So peace, be still. The wind ceased, it says here in the scripture. And there was great calm. Literally, this is this, the word great here is the same one from the great storm. It's a mega calm. So we went from mega storm to mega calm. The contrast there. Verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He rebukes them for their fear, but then they were filled with great fear. Oh, but this second fear is a good fear. Cowardly fear leads to unbelief, whereas true belief leads to godly fear. Let me say that again. Cowardly fear leads to unbelief. Whereas true belief leads to godly fear. Some phobias are foolish. Some are good. And there's two types in this story. In verse 41 it says they were filled with great fear. By the way, let me just make a note that kind of drives, connects this back with Jonah. In the Greek, that's exactly the same words that we have from the end of, from the end of chapter 1 the story of Jonah with the sailors after the, after the sea was calmed when they tossed Jonah overboard. So there's this fear in verse 41. They were filled with great fear. It's a different word in the Greek than the fear from verse 40. It's the normal word for fear, phobos, where we get our word phobia from. And so no longer is the cowardly fear spoken of here in the earlier verse. This fear is a deep reverential awe for who Jesus is, but it's even more than that. It's a genuine feeling of the weight of the power of God in the person of Jesus Christ. They said in verse 41, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Now this is a rhetorical question. It does not mean that they're stumped, but that they're stunned. Disciples aren't stumped. This is confusing. They're stunned by what just happened. Who is this? The Old Testament scriptures over and over again spoke of there only being one person who could still storms and calm seas. And that one person is Yahweh. We read... Part of this earlier in Psalm 107, but I'm going to read another psalm. Psalm 65, verse 6. Awesome, but awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, the one who by his strength establishes the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. Jesus had made a very clear statement. He made it very clear as he said, Peace be still, for they knew that only God could command the seas and the storms to be quiet. Only God has the authority to raise the storm and also hush the storm. So the disciples are stunned, and now we see the reason for their unbelief. They didn't fully grasp who this man was. They didn't fully see the God-man. Is that not our same problem today? We should and do focus on the humanity of Christ. For without it we would have no redemption, but we should also have our eyes wide open to the divinity of Christ so that we don't make the same mistake that in Psalm 50 verse 21 God speaks of when he says this, You thought that I was one like yourself. The reason many have faith that wavers is because they think way too little of Jesus. Though he identifies fully with us, he is also very God of very God. And thus we see how absolutely spectacular it is ...that He has promised to always be with us. Do you understand the stunning nature of these words from the very end of the book of Matthew? Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with us. No storm, no trouble, no trial, no danger has come our way... ...that hasn't first passed through His hands, and He has promised never to leave us. So why is our faith so puny? Why is our cowardice so big... It is because we take our eyes off of who Jesus is. So, in conclusion, we end up with misplaced fear. We fear man. We fear circumstances. We fear disease, death, danger. We fear fear itself. Phobophobes. But Jesus turns to us and says, Let me show you who you need to fear. Fear me, fear God. Oh, believer, do you fear Jesus? Do you meditate upon his power, his glory, the weight of his being? Do you? If you will, then you will find a fear that leads you to genuine peace. Stop letting your eyes gaze upon the storms. Stop meditating upon the very real dangers you are facing and start trusting in the one who rules all those things and works all those things together for your good, even the most deadly of storms. And unbeliever, let me just ask you this question. Who do you fear? Let me leave you with some other tough words from Jesus. Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. O unbeliever, turn from your sin. Turn from trying to please man because you want to be accepted. Turn from your fear of not having enough money. Turn from your incessant focus on, on yourself. And turn to the one whose voice spoke the seas into existence in Genesis 1 and whose voice told them to settle down in Mark 4. Put your faith in Jesus, the God-man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you and thank you that you are so good to us. We are so weak. We are so like the disciples. We are so impudent so often. Demanding an explanation as to why you've decided to run the universe or at least our lives the way you have. It's as foolish as a pot asking the potter why you're doing these things. Help us to rest. And Father, the only way we're going to rest is to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. To see who he is as 100% man, 100% God, the one who made a way for us to be at true peace. Peace with you, Father, peace with others, and peace within our own hearts are so easily filled with water when troubles come. So Jesus, stir up faith in us. Stir up faith in us through your word. We ask this in your name. Amen.